Matthew 25, 31 through 46. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. He may be seated. Thanks. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, thank you for this day that you have made. I pray, Lord, that you uh, would speak to us as we, your servants, listen. Have your way in the service. Allow your Holy Spirit to bring all things together for your name's sake and your glory. I trust in your word. I trust in your spirit. We trust in you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. I remember, like yesterday, palms were sweating. There was tension in my chest. As I sat in a very cold courtroom, awaiting the verdict of a case in which a close friend of mine was on trial for. I knew they were innocent. Their families and friends knew they were innocent. But if convicted, their whole life would forever be changed. We're waiting for a couple hours for the jury to come back and to deliver the verdict. And I remember pacing back and forth, sitting down and trying to comfort their family. If you've ever had an experience like that, you'll never forget that feeling of waiting for a verdict to come in, trying to be patient knowing that the next few moments can determine the lifetime of a person. In Matthew 25, we see a picture of Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate judge of the world. And before him, there is two categories of people. One is sheep, 
The other is goats. The sheep in this passage represent the true disciples of Jesus. They are those who have lived their life in humility and submission to him and his commands. And the goats are those who would describe themselves as disciples of Jesus, but we'll see in this text whose lives do not testify of it. Rather than lives marked by humility, their lives is marked by stubbornness. Now, we're getting ready to celebrate Easter next week. It is the most important time of the Christian calendar. And today is what we call Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday that we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem as a king in fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah. We see in Matthew 21 that Matthew retells the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And as this Holy Week, this Passion Week starts, we see in Matthew 24 that Jesus is asked a disciple, a question by his disciples, a key question that will start a very long discourse that Jesus will give. Matthew is made up of five long discourses, five long sermons, so to speak, that Jesus gives. And this passage, Matthew 25, sits right towards the end of that sermon. In Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So from Matthew 24, verse 4, all the way through the end of 25, Jesus is answering that question. What will the coming of age look like? How will you know that it is among you? Then he gives us a glorious picture, a glorious scene for what that is going to look like. And in essence, when we look at this chapter and we think about this sermon, we'll see this. True disciples of Jesus are those whose lives have been marked by his love. They love others well because they have experienced the perfect love of a triune God. True disciples of Jesus love consistently and passionately because they have been loved perfectly by Jesus Christ. In this glorious scene, we see in verse 31 that Jesus gives us this picture and he says, when the the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So the first thing we see in this text is that Jesus, the merciful Savior, he gives this invitation of a lifetime to sheep. And he is the ultimate judge who will give a verdict. And the question is, who is true disciples? Who are his sheep? And who are those who are just posing or are faking? In this text, we see that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a term that can simply be summed up as being a a human being, 
When he says that he's the son of man, he's saying that he is simply a human being. He used this, this term throughout Matthew, but we know that he's not only a human being, but he's also fully divine. He is fully God. But Jesus, God, became man to right Adam's wrong. He is the second Adam who will bring redemption to mankind by living a perfect life, by dying the death that every single human being deserves to die because they are sinners. But this, this phrase, son of man, also carries more weight. In Daniel chapter 7, we read these words. The prophet Daniel has a, a prophecy that the Lord has given and this is a, a, a picture that God has given. This is thousands of years before, and here's what the prophecies have to say. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel, thousands of years before, a Jewish prophet sees a person who looks like a man who's coming in glory, who is going to stand before God the Father, and he is going to receive all the glory that is due his name from all the peoples of all the nations. And he is going to stand as judge over all history. Jesus, when he refers to himself as the son of man, is pointing back to this prophecy. He is saying, you will know that the end days is coming because this prophecy will come to pass. You will see me in my glory and you'll see my squad with me. You'll see angels. I love what it says, all the angels. You'll see Gabriel, Michael. And they all will be standing at attention, as they always do, ready to do the bidding of the Father and the Son, waiting to hear instructions from their general. And then it says that he will be on his glorious throne. I love that, glorious throne. Kind of like the lion coon, Mufasa. Ooh, say it again, say it again. <laughs> glorious throne, say it again, say it again. It is glorious. The Bible speaks of the throne of Jesus as being a throne of power, a place of majesty, a place of beauty, a place of sovereign rule, a place of perfection. Jesus is standing there, sitting there on his throne, and all the nations are gathered before him. This is the fulfillment of the great commission that a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be before him. And specifically, there are sheep and there are goats, both of whom who profess that Jesus is Lord, both of whom who say that they have faithfully followed Jesus, but they are standing before him awaiting a verdict. And Jesus separates them into two categories, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And then in verse 34, we see an incredible invitation then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then in verse 35, he's going to show the difference between sheep and goat. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. He's talking to those on his right. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So some people, when they read verse 34 and 36, some theologians, they 
get a little uh, shaky with this passage because they think that it is teaching salvation by works, that one is made right with God because of what they do. And it's not Christian doctrine. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith. The gospel does not teach us that we are made right with God by what we do, but rather we are made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. We are saved by works. It's just not our own works. It's the works of Jesus Christ. But what this passage is teaching us is that though we're not saved by works, that true salvation is followed by good works. In other words, a saving faith is a faith that works. In other words, uh, faith without works is dead. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, we've been given new hearts. And those new hearts then lead us to do the good works that God, the Father, has prepared for us before the beginning of the world. We are his workmanship. So those who are deemed goats are those who are deemed goats because their, their lives have not testified to true salvation. And those who are deemed sheep are those who have experienced true salvation and their lives testify of that salvation. They have experienced God's love and as a result, they love others. But also verse 34 really does away with that notion. Jesus gives this invitation. He says, come to me, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This does away with works. Because what they're receiving is something that was prepared for them before they even did a good work. Which points to God the Father predestined, choosing, saving a people who do not deserve salvation by grace. We also see a sincere question here. In verse 37, I love the righteous response. They answered him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? A sincere question. They're like, thank you for this honor. Thank you for giving us this inheritance. And why do they have that inheritance? They are receiving this inheritance. When do we receive inheritance in general? When someone has died, they are receiving this inheritance because God has given them, blessed them, and saved them by grace. But they are receiving this inheritance because Jesus Christ died and they believe by faith in his death and his resurrection. They ask this sincere question. They're not boastful and prideful. They don't even think they deserve this inheritance. They're like, when did we do this? When did all this happen? Look at Jesus' shocking response. He says, the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. This is a powerful statement. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And the question is, who are the least of these? Are the least of these everyone in this passage? Or are the least of these a particular people? Well, I would argue specifically in the context of Matthew 25, it's a particular people. He says, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Matthew 12, uh, Jesus, family comes looking for him. 
but he's busy doing ministry. And he looks to his disciples, not willing to be interrupted by his family. He says, who is my brothers and my sisters? And he answers his own question. He said, it's those who do the will of my father. In other words, those who are my disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending his disciples out to do ministry and to preach about his kingdom. But we read some some very powerful words in Matthew chapter 10. Read this. Jesus responds at the end of that, after telling them that they will go out into the world as sheep amongst wolves. We read this. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives a cup of water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. So who is Jesus talking about when he talks about brothers and sisters? He's talking about other Christians, other disciples. And he's saying, whoever gives to one of my disciples who are on mission for me a cold cup of water because they are thirsty, they are, in essence, giving me a cold cup of water. And that's the point of this passage. Sheep are people, disciples. And the way that we know that they are disciples is that they love other disciples. They take care of family members. Jesus said, no, you you gave me something to eat when you gave your brother and sister in Christ something to eat. You gave me clothes when you gave your brother and sister in Christ who didn't have clothes, clothes. You came and visited me in prison when you visited your brother and sister in Christ in prison who was falsely uh, imprisoned because they were being persecuted. He identifies with the weak and with the lowly. He identifies with you and with me. That's what he's saying. That's why Saul, when he was traveling on the road to Damascus, when Jesus confronted him in his sin and in his mess, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting the church. But he said, every time you persecute a Christian, when Stephen was stoned, you weren't just stoning Stephen, you were stoning me. Why? Because every born again believer is now a part of his body. Jesus is saying, you'll know if you're a sheep of mine by the way you love one another. Isn't that what he says in John 13? You'll know my disciples by the love that they have for each other. Those who are separated are sheep, are those whose lives were marked by loving each other, the church. Now, some people use this as an excuse to only care for people in a church. Some people use this as a reason to say, well, this knocks out any uh, general justice or social justice. As Christians, we're only supposed to give to those who are hurting in our family, and that's that's far from the truth. Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, He didn't say, okay, I'm only going to feed those who are true disciples. Everybody else is going to starve out here today. Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the great commandment. He didn't tell us just to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as ourselves. And then later on, he shows us who is our neighbor. He gives us a parable, the parable of the good Samaritan. And he says, hey, your neighbor is whoever is near. 
and whoever is in need. So this is not an excuse to only love those who are in the household of faith. No, Galatians 6.10, no, we love all. We do good to all. He says, but especially those who are in the household of faith. What is love? Love is a willing commitment to the welfare of another person. It's treating others how Jesus treats you. I'll give you a second to write that down. Love is a willing commitment. It's a commitment. It's not based on feelings. To the welfare of another. It is treating them how Jesus treated you. And how did Jesus treat you? Well, spiritually speaking, you were hungry. Your soul was famished. And if you're a Christian, he fed you himself where he is the bread of life. You were thirsty, and spiritually speaking, he quenched your thirst by giving you living water. You were in prison, Ephesians chapter 2, dead to your own trespasses and sins, but he, he gave you freedom through his blood and through his cross. And we do that to other people, not just spiritually do we give them life by giving them Christ, but we do that to other people by meeting their physical needs, just as Christ provides for us. Second in this text, we see that that Jesus is not only the merciful Savior, but Jesus is the righteous judge, and he declares eternal judgment to the goats. Verse 41, we see that he separates the goats to his left, And those are those who are cursed. And what are they cursed? They're cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Let that sink in. The goats are people who would profess to be Christians, but who were not regenerate, who did not receive a new heart. But from the outside, other people probably thought they were Christians because they had Christianese and they did from time to time Christian things. But on the day of judgment, they will stand before God and they will receive judgment. They will be separated and condemned. They receive a verdict of eternal damnation and they will join Satan himself and the angels that he deceived. See Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12. They will be rubbing elbows for all eternity with pure evil. Why? Because their hearts were not filled with love, and their hearts were not transformed by Christ. Romans 5.5 says that upon salvation, God pours his love into our hearts. And as we follow Jesus, as we submit to the Christ of Scripture, as we allow him to transform our minds and make us new, what naturally flows out is the love of Christ. We begin to look like him and to walk like him and to, to talk like him. Well, goats are those who have never received that that new heart, and they've never experienced that supernatural love, so they don't love supernaturally. They they weren't able to love in a a way that wasn't self-serving, in a way that pointed to Christ. They may have served, but it pointed ultimately at the end to themselves, and they were deceiving themselves. Jesus gives this sad reality. He says, for I was hungry... Again, 
and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison, and you did not look after me. So again, Jesus is identifying with the least of these. He's saying, you didn't look out for me. Verse 44, and they will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help, help you? And what does Jesus say again? Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And throughout Matthew, the least of these are other disciples who are, are suffering for the name of Christ, who are on mission But because they're on mission for Jesus, because they're sacrificing for Jesus, they are without. But also the least of these throughout the scriptures, quite literally in Matthew chapter 18, are little children. (laughs) He's saying part of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ, part of having a new heart is the way you treat little kids. Is your attitude towards people who can't help themselves. And what compels us to do this is we remember that we were hungry, we were thirsty, we were in prison, and that God filled us. And look at verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what is Jesus doing with these parables? We know throughout the parables, just a few chapters over, Jesus talks about how we should let the the wheat grow up with the chaff, that it's not our job to, at the end of the day, to say who's in the kingdom and who's out. We can look for fruit and we can see fruit, and, and we, can, we can look according to that fruit. But at the end of the day, uh, we are not the final judge. Jesus is the final judge. And what Matthew is putting this here in this text for is he's calling us to examine our own lives. That's what Jesus wants to happen as he's preaching to the crowds. He's saying, examine your life. How do you love the body of Christ? Examine your life. How do you love the ecclesia, those who have been called out by my name? Examine your life. Is your life marked by you living for my advantage and to help my people, or uh, is it marked by selfish, self-centered living? Three things, three ways to apply. Number one, is this text calls us to have a complete picture of Christ. It's a call for us to see the mercy and the severity of Christ. Both pictures are present in this passage. Christ's mercy, he is merciful. And at the end, who is he merciful to? Those who submit to his lordship and his kingship. He is merciful. He is a God who saves but also to see that he is also a God of severity. He will judge people. The day is coming when the gavel will hit and people will either go to eternal life and be in God's presence or eternal death and hell. And hell is mentioned throughout the scripture as a place of gnashing of teeth, as a place of unconsuming fire, of a place of darkness, unconsuming fire and darkness. These are images that are given to show the severity of life without God. And it's a real place. It's a literal place. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some of us in here, we only see Jesus Christ as being merciful. And we don't see him as being one who's going to judge the world. But this text reminds us that he is going to judge the world. And the way we see Jesus merciful is we think that at the end, love wins. At the end, everybody will be saved. And it's this weird thing we do theologically where it's like, yeah, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. And then like, it plays out when a celebrity dies and this person was like a hellion. Their life does not testify of knowing Christ. You listen to their music and it's like, godless. 
promoting violence, promiscuity, and then they die and all of a sudden we're on Twitter like, rest in peace. Oh, they made me laugh, rest in peace, they must be in heaven. They're looking down on us. It's like, yes, Christ is merciful, but he's merciful to those who bend their knees to him and put their faith and trust in him and who see him as the only way of salvation. He's not generally going to be merciful to everyone. And perhaps what you need to see is that Christ is judge, that you, all of Christ is perfection. His holiness, his beauty, his grace, his mercy is perfection, but also his anger and his wrath that will show up on the last day is perfection. And you can't have a perfect God without having a God who gets angry towards sin and injustice. And this picture of Christ as judge is an invitation for us to to meditate on this picture and to be reminded that there are people around us that we love that if they were to die today, they would go to hell. There are people that we eat with and that that we text daily that make us laugh, that we have never shared Jesus with because we are afraid or because it's not convenient. And this picture reminds us that if we truly love them and if we are compelled by Christ's love, that we will not only build a bridge, but we also will send the gospel across that bridge. And I want to encourage you to not spend 15 years building a bridge. Bridges are meant to be built to send something across. And at some point, this picture reminds us that we must send the gospel across. But some of us, all we do is see Christ as judge. And what God is calling you to do today is to remind yourself that he is merciful and welcoming and that he is a God of invitation. And he invites you into his kingdom and to rest and to the good life. And that he loves you if you're in him with a love that cannot be compared to. Second, this text calls us to rethink faithfulness. That is, faithfulness to Christ is being diligent and ordinary over a lifetime, not extraordinary and visible for a moment. The things that Jesus mentioned that his sheep is doing, they're they're really not extravagant things. The things that Jesus mentioned are just ordinary acts of love. The things that Jesus points out in this text are are simple things, things that mostly all of us can do in here. We can give someone water. We We can give someone food. We can offer someone a couch in their time of need. And what Jesus is saying is that you know that you are a disciple of mine because you are growing in your capacity to love other people. And these other people are not necessarily people who look like you or who think like you, but they're they're people who are created in the image of God and whom God is breaking your heart for. So yes, we Love the medical clinic. We had so many volunteers. It was so beautiful, and I am thankful as a pastor. We love foreign missions. We have so many missionaries that are out on the foreign field, and so many of you who are signing up for mission trips. Those are beautiful. But a lot of times when we think about loving people, we think about the extravagant things, the things that create energy and excitement. But what this text is calling you to do is not to overlook the simple things. It's to take 
time to slow down, to look around you, to listen when that community member who is hurting is hurting, and to take time out of your schedule to ask questions, to put an arm around them, to listen, to remind them of Christ's love. And we're a young church. And part of being a young church, and I'm young, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, in my mid-30s, and part of being young is that we can be really self-focused because we're afraid. We're afraid because we don't know. Many of us haven't built up wealth. We're afraid because this is our first time parenting. We're, we're afraid because our life kind of centers on us, and every day it feels like it's about to fall apart. <laughs> and part of the reason I think that we don't draw towards people in a simple ways is because we're not simply coming to Christ as Lord and Savior and as the one who provides rest. We care for people because we're being cared for. And part of the reason that we don't do the selfless thing is because we're so fixated on ourselves. But here we have to remember God's promise. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain for you to rise early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives rest to his beloved. The reason some of us are unable to love other people is because we're not finding rest in Christ ourselves. Listen, how do we grow in loving other people? It's by looking, by realizing too that, that we have a calling. God hasn't called us to give water to everybody and visit everyone in prison. We're not Jesus. There's one Savior. You'll burn out quickly. That's not what this text is doing. But what it is doing is to ask yourself, what has God called me to in this season? And maybe you need to ask a friend. When you think about me, what, what do you think I'm gifted at? Where do you see God's calling on my life? The second is capacity. Every season of life looks different. And for some of us right now, we're in a season of life where God has called us to things and there's not much margin in our, in our lives. And that doesn't give us an excuse to care for other people, but it means that we need to steward our time really well. We need to be mindful of our capacity and be mindful of the simple things that we can do. We start this series by talking about what it means to be a steward and by being reminded that one day God would judge how we stewarded our time, our treasure, and our talents. I'm convinced that the reason why some of us are unable to, to love people in simple ways is not because we don't have. It's because we're not stewarding well what God has given. It's because we haven't sat down to take inventory over how we spend our time and how we spend our resources. It's because we're trying to keep up honestly with the American dream, an American agenda rather than a kingdom agenda. And that looks differently for each of us, but it causes us to seek the face of God and to live in community and to allow people to speak into our lives. Third, this text reminds us to choose this day. Who will we serve? Because one day we will no longer have that choice. It's interesting, a couple chapters over, Jesus stands before Pilate. Jesus is falsely accused 
And essentially, he becomes, once again, one of the least of these. He's in prison. He's beat. On a cross, he yells, I thirst. But he's going to stand before Pilate, and Pilate can treat him as a sheep, knowing his innocence, which the text says that he knows that the reason why Jesus is before him is because the religious leaders were jealous of him, or Pilate can treat him as a goat. His wife even warns him, I had a dream last night, wash your hands of this man, he is innocent. But rather than submit to Jesus as king, rather than to release him, he treated him as a common criminal because he feared people, because of his personal agenda. And here's the truth. Jesus stood before the crowds, him and a man by the name of Barabbas. The crowds can free one of them, and they choose to condemn Jesus. And as a result, he's taken to the cross. One day, Pilate will stand before the same one that he judged and give an account for the decision he made. One day, Hitler will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of what he did with him. But one day, you will too. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus today? Have you truly accepted Jesus as king and Lord of your life? Or is he someone that's convenient and someone that you identify with because you think that he can give you what you want and he allows you to fit in with your family's expectations or with your friends. There's only one response to this text if you do not know Jesus, and that is to say, Lord, I surrender all. Not I surrender some, I surrender all by faith, and I give it to you, and I believe that you are better and that you are able to give me freedom and to give me life. And every Sunday, as Christians, we take a meal together to remind us of Jesus being our ultimate provision. He's the one who satisfies our deepest hungers and thirst. And he is the one who loves us with a perfect love and it's through his love that we are empowered to love other people. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by wine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but really, I am calling you to consider and to take Christ as your Lord and Savior, because a day of judgment is coming. And one day, you will see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his might, and he will either be Lord to you or he will be judge. And you will spend the rest of your existence, which is forever, either in his presence, experiencing joy and delight or apart from him. And you will spend it apart from him because you did not choose him and you did not heed his warnings when they were given. Run to Jesus today. Escape God's wrath today. 
by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you are a Christian today, here is a reminder for you today to have a living faith, to continue to persevere and experience the love of Jesus so that you can give his love away freely to other people and be constantly transformed by him for his glory. Let's pray.